Professor Allen's Comics Reading Journal for the month of May, 2023. Welcome to episode 96 of this podcast series, meaning that this three-month summer replacement show from 2015 is now eight years old. The concept of the show is for us to just have a brief chat about what comics I've read since the last time we had one of these brief chats, which should make this pretty much the books I read during May. These comics are listed weekly in blog posts at eyesandearsblog.blogspot.com. And I regularly repost links to those on my Facebook and Twitter, so you can find those. But those posts are not exactly spoilers for the podcast, since those are just lists, and here is a little more review, a little more critique, and a little more discussion. But first, a little feedback. Responding to the March episode on global comics, Derek Derek WC from the Fanholes pointed out that my favorite manga of the month, You're Under Arrest, was made into an entire anime series, for which he sent a YouTube link. Thank you, Derek. Last month, for Humor Comics Month, I included a picture of Laffy Daffy Comics Number 1, which Sean Urbanski referred to in his comic. Looks like some quality pre-code laughs. Exactly, Sean, except maybe not for the quality part. And Sir, Sir Martin of Grey wrote in commenting on many of the books I read last month. Cheers for another spiffing episode, Professor. I was also a huge fan of many of the new 52 titles you mentioned. You have to give Dan DiDio his due. He at least tried a few, well, a lot, of experiments going beyond traditional superheroes. It sounds like you enjoyed that timeless book from Marvel more than I did. I find Marvel's giant preview books far too bitty. And more often than not, the stories teased aren't followed up for two or three years. Also, I'm so sick of Kang. He's no Doctor Doom, is he? Well, Mark, that, of course, is a genius point. That is why we love you. He continues, Scooby-Doo team-up has to be the most consistently entertaining DC book of the last decade. If I had all the money, I'd buy copies of the trades for every kid in the world. Of the books on your list that I've not read, and there are many, World's Finest 252 would be the one I'd ask Summer Santa for. I mean, a dollar comic. Yes, Blooming, please. And I'm sorry. Sugar and Spike 81 wasn't for you. Dang. So, what have you been reading this past month, Professor? Funny you should ask, Mart. Stay tuned. And find out. Social media support for last episode came from Lux Grimm. Drew, from Comics for Fun and Profit, The Telltale Mind. Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Karen. From Between the Pages, James from Karen. Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us. The Bat Pod, 
Jeremiah the Notorious JJG, Chris Lydon 7, Ed Moore from the mighty Thorcast, Clock's Watch, Bill at Spy Vinyl, Chris from Professor Frenzy, which is still a show, Kraken Ramen, The Podcaster Lounge, Shane Kelly, Matthew McKeegan, Pat from the Longbox Crusade, Vic and Phoenix, Chris Willette, and Billy D from Magazines and Monsters. And now, on to the books I read last month. And as we do on this show, I'm going to categorize those books that I read. And first are the issues that I read specifically for podcast appearances, the homework books. For the recent Quarterbin 193, I read a number of books that I picked up at Free Comic Book Day. And there are just too many of them to individually list here. And for upcoming episode 194, I read X-Men number one, a very obscure small print run issue from 1991. And for an assistant editor special of Back to the Bins that I did with Dr. Ange and Chris, the hair metal hero, I brought Magnus Robot Fighter 31 from the Gold Key era. The doctor brought a book from one of his favorite creators, Howard Chaikin's Cyberella number one. We were coordinating this episode right before Free Comic Book Day, and I actually found that issue and the following eight issues in the Crazy Comics 50 Cent Sale. Perfect timing. And on that episode, I also read Rock and Roll Comics number five, featuring the story of Def Leppard, which Chris brought to the episode. And we got a couple of comics that I read for listening to podcasts via the DC Infinite app, and thank you, DC Comics-themed podcasters. So to listen along with Laurel, a.k.a. Mountain Flower and her crew, on episodes 203 and 204 of Feathers and Foes, I read Birds of Prey 5 and 6 from the New 52 era. Issue 6 was the usual end to the first arcs for books from this era, but there's at least one more issue in this storyline, which was strange. And to follow along with Billy Dean's his excellent Brave and the Bob show, I read Brave and the Bold, 84. On to new comics that we read right off the shelves, and we do actually have one of the digital variety, thanks to the Hoopla app. Something is Killing the Children 30, in which our rogue monster hunter Erica, formerly Erica Slaughter, is getting ready to face down Cutter, sent to town to kill her. And if she has to kill others along the way, well, that is okay with her, too. I expected an actual, you know, fight this issue, because we've been building to one, and also, this was issue 30, divisible by six, as in six issues for a trade and all that. This is one of those series that is definitely feeling spread out as it goes on, as if maybe James Tynan IV didn't have a big plan for what to do with the series after the first big storyline or two. 
which happens sometimes, I understand. And since I'm spending only one Hoopla credit per month instead of the $4 cash, I'm more or less okay with that. And on to some general comic reading that I did. I received from our court physician, Sir Dr. Ange, Silver Sable 6, 7, and 9, which he picked up at the recent Wicked Con. Ange promised me extreme comics, and boy, did he deliver. Fun romps as the Wild Pack tracks down the missing Statue of Liberty, which I am 99% certain was previously the plot of a hostess ad. So I had trouble taking that one issue seriously, although the title did get a little more serious in the later issues as Sable reminisces about her father's Nazi hunting past. As she takes on their current version, Hydra. Fun reads extremely fun. From the con, he also sent me a signed comic, signed by Terry Dotson, of a comic that had somebody kissing my girl, the Scarlet Witch, on the cover of Uncanny Avengers 30 from 2018. The someone in question is Dr. Voodoo. As Wanda figures, he can help her walk the path between her worlds of witch and woman and unlock her heart. (sighs) If only she wanted help walking the worlds of assets and liabilities and unlock her credit rating. Hashtag heartbroken. From the dollar box at World's Greatest Comics, Earth's Mightiest Heroes number 8 from 2007. And for a last issue, it was pretty satisfying. Did I know every little bit of what was going on? Eh, not really. But for not having read issues 1 through 7, this wasn't a bad issue 8. I don't recall where I got this next one from. It's from the New Age of Heroes, coming out of Dark Knight's Metal, DC's The Terrifics, number 1 which I'm willing to call the best Fantastic Four knockoff issue I've read in a long time. My theory is that Jeff Lemire realized that Marvel had a character named Mr. Fantastic and DC had one named Mr. Terrific. So why not use him in that role? It kind of makes sense. I think this was just one of those ideas that had to happen at some point. And I mentioned last time that there's a character that I will be reading a bunch of over the next few months, because I will be presenting at the Spider-Man conference at Bowling Green State University in September. So I plan to flip through a ton of Spidey comics and even read a few of those, such as Part 2 of the Beyond Saga, Amazing Spider-Man 80.bey and 81 to 85, which was better than part one, I thought. Certainly more focused. Peter's in the hospital. Ben is doing the Spidey thing for the Beyond Corporation. Miles Morales is getting roped in for a second or two. 
Otto takes a significant role as well. I liked Otto's arc in here, actually. From trying his best to be his best for May, while not being able to shake that whole superior attitude. He also has good reason to suspect that the Beyond Corporation has stolen some info from him, some of his scientific creations, and he wants it back even if Ben Riley is standing in the way. And a series from the Sony Gamerverse, which I think I talked about this somewhere recently, maybe on the free comic book day episode, I don't know. But I am out of Spidey continuity, and I've no real desire to dive super deep into it, which means that these sort of alternate universe miniseries they can actually work for me. This one was the Black Cat Strikes, one through five, and I do confess to having a big crush on Felicia. Please, nobody tell Wanda about this. I don't want my comic book girlfriends fighting over me. In this world, Pete and Felicia have a past, while Pete and MJ have a present, and somehow all three are trying to work together, along with Silver Sable, to bring down Hammerhead. This one has drama, it has action, it has romance, and it has more drama. Fine storyline, and weirdly, like I said, the kind of Spider-Man story that works for me. And then some kids' books that I read, many from Pulp Reality, some from Sir Rob Lance. Archie's Pals and Gals, 186, 197, 208, and 209. Four Color, 1250, a.k.a. MGM Mouse Musketeers. Treasure Chest of Fun and Fact, Volume 23, Issue 5. Betty and Veronica, 7. Veronica, 76. The Betty and Veronica Double Digest, 313, and Archie's Joke Book, 202, 275, and 288. The Joke Books are collections of one page, sometimes even half page, gag strips. And once you get the rhythm of how to read these, and if you can stumble upon a couple in a row that are pretty funny, the issues can build a type of fun momentum. The cover of 288 had one of my favorite jokes on it, in which Archie is working out, saying he wants to be known one day as Mr. Universe. He's struggling with lifting a weight, so he downgrades himself to, or Mr. America. And then finally, lifting a tiny dumbbell over his head, he says, I think I'll settle for being Mr. Elm Street. And another good one was Archie giving Dilton advice on having the courage to ask Melanie out on a date. And then Dilton is in big trouble. She said yes. And also, Mr. Weatherby's anger at Archie for creating a paper airplane that he found last period. Archie said it couldn't have been him, because last period he was asleep in study hall. And then in detention, Archie admits that maybe that was the wrong answer. And I've talked about treasure chest more than once, and this issue was representative of that title's mix of U.S. history, patriotism, adventure, and religion. This had a story about the U.S. Coast Guard and their search and rescue operations. 
a story about a charity-minded Catholic priest in St. Louis, and a couple of kids' adventure tales. As always, an interesting combo of material. And that means that it's time to take a break here, play a promo, and when we come back, we'll talk all about the seasonal reading that I did during May. To confront the ultimate killers, I must construct the ultimate alias. Hey, who is that lady? I think she could fly. To combat the murderers who destroy my family, crush my own life on their way to consuming everything, I must become a greater, more fearsome destroyer. Hey, man, somebody killed this lady. To track down the animals who prey on the innocent, I must stalk them first. I am no longer their quarry. I am the Huntress. New Huntress Podcast coming to you in 2019. Visit thehuntress89.blogspot.com for new episodes. Go to the Facebook page at Huntress Podcast. Go to Twitter, The Huntress Podcast. And you can always find episodes of the Huntress Podcast at rightonnetwork.com and go to Apple iTunes where this podcast is a joint venture with the Helena Bertinelli Podcast and the Cassandra Kane Batgirl Podcast. So go to Apple Podcasts, the Batgirl slash Huntress Podcast. And we're back to talk about seasonal reading, which for May means hashtag crime comics month. Of course, if you believe Dr. Wortham, every comic is a crime comic. But I went with the more traditional definition of situations involving, you know, crime, criminals, maybe the police and detectives, that sort of thing. These are, of course, from a variety of sources, and I will do my best to identify those as we go. So in approximate alphabetical order, and this month I do have one from Archie Comics, recommended to me by my Hoopla buddy, Sir Luke, which was good, because I didn't think I was going to be able to stretch the boundaries, the definitions, enough to fit any Archie content in. And I was thinking how interesting it is. I'd never really thought about this specifically before, but with all the characters in the Archie world, I don't think we've ever had a recurring character from the world of law enforcement or the judiciary. There's no neighborhood cop or chief of police or judge who is a you know recurring character. Yes, characters in those roles have obviously appeared when a story needs it, but Nothing on a recurring basis. Except for Veronica 123, where we actually have a crime story, stake out at Lodge Mansion. In which, Lodge Mansion, gets police protection after a rash of thefts have occurred in their upscale neighborhood. And Veronica saves the day by falling off the trellis when she was sneaking out to meet Archie and landing on top of the burglar. Her dad was mad, but couldn't really complain all that much. 
Moving on, I have a few comics with cop in the title, so I think I'm going to start there. Written by an 11-year-old and drawn by his professional artist brother, also a major TV show, Axe Cop, The American Chopper Number 1. What I knew of this title was that it was the younger brother telling a story with all the wackiness of a 10, 11-year-old in the style of, and then this happens, and then this happened, and what if that happened? And that is exactly what this is. And no, it makes no sense, like none whatsoever. But if you're in the right mood, like the bad puns, and I'm okay with a lead character who's a cop and carrying an axe, maybe check it out. I don't think I could take more than a few issues of this at a time. Matter of fact, maybe one issue is the right number for me. And then from the other end of the spectrum, Hell Cop number one. And if you're thinking, Professor, that sounds like that could be an image book from 1998. Well, friend, you would be correct. That is exactly what this is. In this series, because of interdimensional pseudoscientific discoveries, an actual hell dimension has been found, which is reflective of various versions of a dark afterlife from across our cultures and theologies and cosmologies. Our lead character is a cop on the edge, but he's on the edge of hell. It's brash, it's wild, and it's okay. And then a mature book from Scout Comics, mostly because of the storyline and the blood, Broken Eye, number two, in which a woman is brutally murdered as part of a broader crime wave. Not bad, but it really makes me wonder what I missed in issue one. Seconds can be a really tough place to jump into a story. That's the lesson from this one. But it was from a quarter box at half price books, so it was not much of a sunk cost. And let that be a lesson, my friends. From Marvel, written by the excellent Chuck Dixon, Code of Honor, number two, a story focusing on the travails of New York City beat cops in the Marvel Universe. This was a different take than the DC versions of the same concept, like Gordon's Law or Gotham Central. This one really pointed out how difficult superheroes, their very existence and presence, how hard that would make it for a career cop. Story-wise, it's issue two of four, which makes it tricky to judge. But if I ever see any other issue of this in the wild, which I don't think I ever have, I'd probably pick it up. Would like to read more of this, get a better idea of the whole story. And I feel for this type of story, it's hard to think of better hands to be in than those of Chuck Dixon. And it was interesting. A TV tie-in book sent in by Ron Sadowski. CSI, Secret Identity Number 1 of 5, which set up an interesting mystery in Vegas. And if I see the trade at the library, I already checked Hoopla, I'd like to see how it all wrapped up. 
and from a team that are undeniable masters of this genre, Brubaker and Phillips, Criminal, Coward 1-5, through the first storyline of that property. It is one of my favorite types of stories in the crime genre, and that is telling the story of small-time hoods who get wrapped up in a bigger deal than they're used to, totally over their heads. And this one, a pair of low-end criminals agree to join a crew to nab some gold bars, but they get betrayed and end up involved not in a gold heist, but in a heroin theft. And the guys they stole it from, not really happy. Which is also how this ends, not really happy. Brubaker is great at this type of storytelling, whether it's from the cop's perspective, like Gotham Central, or the criminal's perspective. And Phillips conveys the grimy, dirty world so very, very well. Great comics. When I posted a pic of this on Twitter, the lady Laurel said that she had just recently read her first stories in the world of Criminal. And when I posted on Twitter that I was reading this, David Ace Gutierrez commented that Brubaker and Phillips are unparalleled. And the critically acclaimed series from Image, The Good Asian, 1 through 10, which tells a story of crime, family, discrimination, and tragedy in 1936, Los Angeles. A Chinese-American detective tackles a series of ghastly murders in Chinatown, learning just how involved his own family, both sides of his own family, are involved, and has to make decisions that could impact everyone and everything closest to him. This was very good, albeit confusing in the way that many of the best noir stories are. Lots of interpersonal drama in addition to the danger and tragedy. And all of this against the backdrop of discrimination against Chinese immigrants and Americans of Chinese heritage. Very good, and if you're interested in, well, it's not quite historical fiction, but fiction within a very specific and well-researched historical period, think about The Good Asian. In a hard case crime story from Titan Comics, the second story with this character, Gun Honey, Blood for Blood, 1-4. through four. The premise is that Joanna Tan is the world's best person at providing weapons for anyone, any place, any time. And it's a pretty great premise. This one strays a bit from that, though, putting her in the middle of her own vengeance plans. And that's fine, but it does take away what makes this character so divergent from other vengeance-fueled violent ladies. So it turns into a just one of those stories. It's not a bad one of those, and it ends in an interesting place going forward. Groundwork is laid for future storylines, but this one didn't just sparkle to me as much as the first series did. And note, this one is mature in all of the comic book ways. And a 400-page OGN that my friend Lynn gave me for Christmas from first second, The Hunting Accident. This story, based on true events, is about a son who finds that his blind father 
did not, in fact, lose his sight in a hunting accident, hence the title, as he had always said. He actually lost his sight in an accident in a robbery gone awry in the 1930s, for which he served a number of years in prison. And in the joint, he became close friends with the infamous thrill killer Leopold of Leopold and Loeb fame. And all the while, concepts from literature and classical music are woven throughout the book, which is illustrated in a compelling pen and ink style. It is a beautiful object and a pretty compelling story. And a character that often fits into the genre assigned to next month adventure comics as a spy, but this particular storyline seemed to fit here, as James Bond Big Things 1 through 6 revolved around art theft and related scenarios of art forgery. Writer, writer Vida Ayala does call out this misfit, with many people saying it was odd that MI6 was involved in an art case, although it did cross international borders and involve someone with whom Bond has had run-ins with in the past. The bigger struggle for Bond, more so than not knowing much about the art world, is that he has a partner he has to work with. And as a loner, can he bring himself to trust the expertise of someone he has just met? A good story and what seemed like a good change of pace for a Bond story. And from the quarter bins at Half Price Books, two books from a title that I did not recognize, but one cover showed a police officer chasing a thief, and another had a guy shot bleeding out. So they looked like they would be appropriate as crime comics. These are Kane, K-A-N-E, Kane 5 and 6, a black and white title from 1994, from something called Dancing Elephant Press. Issue 5 in particular is noteworthy as it was a completely silent issue of a break-in, a shooting, and the subsequent police chase. You usually don't get memorable issues from 30-year-old books from unknown publishers in the cheap bins, but that one, it really did stand out. And a crime comic with a twist from one of my favorite creative teams, Brian Azzarello and Eduardo Risso, the team behind the wonderful 100 Bullets. This continues my reading of one of their later collabs, Moonshine, 18-22. to 22. It's in the time of Prohibition, and a New York gangster has taken over the operations of the best alcohol maker in the Appalachians, hence Moonshine. But also, that booze-making family? Well, they were werewolves, and now the leader of organized crime in New York? He is too. Hence, Moonshine. This volume really just had the werewolves more in the background as Elliot Ness is doing his best to take down the crime family. It is a nice genre mashup, and it's what Azzarello and Rizzo do best tell the stories of criminals and those caught up in the lives of criminals. Note to self, Professor, you really need to reread 100 Bullets. 
and one of my favorite characters from the original run, Ms. Tree, 2 through 8. I covered issue 1 last year on the quarterbin. These issues pick up right from there with the newly widowed P.I. trying to solve her late husband's murder. In doing that, she learns that he had a previous wife and a current son, and she finds her investigations into his death and the many deaths that follow in its wake, that they all lead to the Muerta crime family. Excellent stories. And I know that even after wrapping up these first couple of stories, the Muertas and the Trees remain close over the run of the title. This is a powerful character. Max Allen Collins is a top five crime writer to me. And Terry Beatty, as a simple and straightforward artistic style that works for this very, very grounded work. And from the team of Bendis and Michael Avon Oming, an alternate world take in which the five families of the mafia still completely control the U.S., or at least large swaths of the U.S. Murder, Inc., Valentine's Trust, 1-6. through six. In this specific story, a newly made man in the mob learns that he has in fact been raised from childhood by his FBI mom, actually from before he was conceived. He was designed, raised, to be a double agent. But he doesn't like the fact that he's been deceived his whole life, and he throws his lot with the mob. And when his first mission for the mob goes horribly awry, he and his beautiful lady bodyguard, start a war between the five families, and it gets wild from there. Bendis, as you know, does character work quite well, and the character work in here is very good. And Oming brings a moody art style and coloring to a modern story told in an old-timey noir fashion. Very good. And then we go to the dark, gritty, mean streets of Ponyville. Wait, what? Oh, never mind. It's My Little Pony, Ponyville Mysteries number 4, from IDW. In this full-length story, water has been diverted from the natural spring away from the pony spa, but the cutie Mark Crusader super sleuths are on the case. Turns out that the itinerant fruit peddlers named Flim and Flam were behind it all. And they pull up stakes and run because, as Flam puts it, forget it, Flim. It's Ponyville. And a book that combines sci fi and crime, a title that I read one issue of back in Sci Fi Month. Here it's Sam Slade, Robo Hunter, number one from the British publisher Quality Comics, 1986. It's an interesting take on the futuristic P.I., where Sam is hired by a rich dude to solve the mystery of the disappearance of a number of his dinner guests over the last year or so. It's an interesting genre mashup. Not the most creative or most fascinating that I've ever seen, but it was interesting and an independent title from back in the 90s, another inglorious black and white, David Lapham's Stray Bullets, 7 and 8, which I picked up for 50 cents each 
at Pulp Reality. This is just a sad series. Both of these issues and the one or two I've read in the past. People down on their luck, over their heads, making bad decisions, and reaping the consequences. I think I've probably read enough stray bullets for the time being. From Kirk Spencer, a.k.a. Big Five Army, an issue that he got via Kickstarter. Takedown number one from Cosmic Times, which had the feel and look of Judge Dredd. And it's actually pretty similar in story as well. Not that that's a bad thing. Except this actually takes place in outer space, not Mega City 1. So you could think of Takedown as more of Green Lantern's meat dread. And then I've got a number of comics here to wrap up this section featuring the original World's Greatest Detective. From Caliber Comics, again in black and white, the 60-page Sherlock Holmes Murder at the Cabaret. Caliber did some books that I quite enjoyed back in the day. In particular, I'm a fan of Jazz Age Chronicles and Baker Street. And this one also was solid. A man and a woman are found dead in the upstairs at a dance club. And the quick conclusion drawn by the police inspector turns out to be not quite right. Holmes reveals the truth after some consultation with Toulouse Lautrec and Oscar Wilde. Good story, and the issue contained another 12 pages or so of backup content, including some cool prose bits, some original, and some reprints from the public domain of Holmes in related titles. My favorite feature was when the lead character of Baker Street, who was a Holmes pastiche character, she actually crosses paths in a four-page story with the great man. And more black and white comics, this is a mini-series from Eternity, 1989. Sherlock Holmes, A Case of Blind Fear, 1 through 4, which pits Holmes against another public domain creation from about the same time, H.G. Wells' Invisible Man. Turns out the Invisible Man, he was an old war buddy of Watson, and Watson owes him a life debt, which he takes advantage of, by separating out Watson from Holmes. But of course, that can't last forever. Our heroes and buddies come together at the end and save the day. I enjoyed this, the Victorian-era crossover. Although I did not need all of the Easter eggs, I enjoyed Professor Challenger's cameo. But as much as I like Irene Adler, I didn't need her in this. I think that sometimes writers feel like they have to throw in the entire kitchen sink when they get a chance to write a beloved property like this. So if this is your one chance to write Holmes, it's going to have every Holmesian thing you can think of in it. And that might not best serve the story. That being said, this is a good series, a good story. It's just that sometimes less is more. Sticking with a black and white Holmes comic from North Star Publishing, formerly published by Renegade Press, The Cases of Sherlock Holmes 16. What this series did was produce not exactly comic books, but illustrated stories. Each 
issue contains the entire text of a Conan Doyle short story, in this case, The Solitary Cyclist, with a number of illustrations per page, and not laid out in traditional comic panels, but as illustrations. I love illustrated stories, and I'm a sucker for this kind of work, and I think Dan Day does a very nice job creating character sketches and action scenes that illustrate the story. And this is an interesting story, one that leans not so much on the crime genre, but is more of a person-behaving-oddly story, which a number of the good Holmes stories fell into that type of, of category. And those are among some of my favorites of the Holmes works. I have about half the issues of this title, The Case of Sherlock Holmes, and enjoy them. One of the few titles I am actively collecting, trying to fill those holes. And then you think about what Sir Arthur Conan Doyle did when he needed to create a foil, an adversary for the great detective. And in crafting this genius, there was really only one type of person, one profession that Doyle knew the members of that profession contain the proper mental preparation to take on Holmes. Which brings us to this recent series from Image, Moriarty, The Dark Chamber 1-4, through four, in which Professor James Moriarty, did I mention the professor part, comes out of retirement for one more score. And though Sherlock is long gone, he does tangle with Mycroft, Dr. Watson, and Inspector Lestrade in a case that involves supernatural forces in the era of World War I. It's an interesting take, good story, and I'm not saying that Moriarty is a role model. I don't even know if he ever got tenure. But along with Xavier and the guy from Gilligan's Island and Frenzy, He's a top-five fictional professor, and that is worth noting. All right, that was a solid collection of crime comics. Next month is another fun genre, as I mentioned, for June. We'll be doing some hashtag Adventure Comics Month reading. I imagine some trips to those days of high adventure. Back to the pulp era, perhaps, and certainly we'll be going to the jungle. Looking forward to it all. And I think that's everything. In terms of my favorite reads of this month, that Black Cat story was fun. I enjoyed Uncanny Avengers with the Scarlet Witch. For crime comics, Criminal is Tough to Beat, I like Moonshine. And Axe Cop is Insane. But in terms of my absolute favorite. When you have a Sherlock Holmes story, an actual Arthur Conan Doyle short story, that has to be the winner. And that means that The Cases of Sherlock Holmes 16 is my favorite read of the month. Next month, I'm not really sure what I will be reading other than some of those adventure books for June. But beyond that, who knows? But whatever I do end up reading, I will be here to talk about the books I read in June in an episode that ought to be out in early July. 
Feel free to let me know what you think of this episode, what you think of any of these books that I mentioned. You can send that feedback via email at relativelygeeky at gmail.com or as a comment on the Facebook or blog post for the episode. The blog is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. You can follow the network on Twitter at relatively underscore geek. And, of course, the network has its own page on Facebook as well. Come join us. All are welcome. Thanks for listening, and keep the pages turning.